Welcome to another episode of the Drug Classroom Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with the David Yerlink, a clinical pharmacologist, physician, and drug safety researcher. We talked about the opioid epidemic, how prescribing practices should change, and the safety of opioids in the long term. I've been a fan of Dr. Yerlink's Twitter for quite some time. If you're interested in drug safety, policy, and medicine, you'll want to visit his feed at twitter.com slash David Yerlink. His perspective on opioids and drug policy is well-informed and respectable. I think he has an especially useful perspective on the current opioid situation, so it was great to have him on. I want to apologize ahead of time for some quality issues with this recording. We had to use Skype, so you'll notice a disrupted connection at times, and due to an oversight on my end, you'll also hear some clicking in the background. These issues should be avoided in future episodes. As always, TDC is exclusively supported by donations. You can help out by donating through Patreon, PayPal, or Bitcoin. If you want to contribute, visit thedrugclassroom.com slash support. And without further ado, here's David Yerlink. I'm here with David Yerlink. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So before we get into talking about opioids, which is an area I know you're fairly focused on, at least on Twitter, can you just talk about how you got into medicine and pharmacology? Uh, I almost didn't. Uh, I mean, I, as a high school student, I was a terrible student, almost failed grade 10, and uh, was planning to do music for a living. And then finally, in the nick of time, realized that I wasn't going to make a career of that and, and get into pharmacy back when the days when you could just go right out of high school into pharmacy. Um, and about halfway through my pharmacy training, I realized I actually liked the biologic sciences and then applied myself and, and got in, I think, just by the skin of my teeth into medical school. And it was easy from there. You know, I, by virtue of having been a pharmacist, I liked the uh, the drug side of things. And so naturally found myself going from, you know, I thought about cardiology, thought about infectious disease, ICU, all the other specialties. But it was the the drug stuff and the toxicology stuff in particular that kind of pushed me to where to what I'm doing now. And what is your your day to day job? Yeah, so I I got a bunch of different hats. Um, you know, uh, I do clinical work. So for about uh, three months out of the year, I'll look after inpatients on adult internal medicine ward at a big trauma hospital. Um, Twelve months out of the year, I also see consults from a, a, a Clin Farm talk service. So we might see a you know, a bad adverse drug reaction, or we might be called to the emergency department to see a patient with an overdose or what have you. The bulk of my work, though, really is uh, is research. And so I do research in the field of drug safety. And most of that involves tinkering with uh, massive databases, uh, prescription claims databases. And you can, if you, you can link them, uh, we got 20 plus years of data in Ontario on, you know, millions of people uh, that you can link you can link prescribing to hospital visits, to vital stats, to geography, to you name it. And it's easy. It's hard to do that well. I mean, if you do it well with a respect for the limitations of the data, you can draw inferences about what happens to people who are prescribed drugs in the real world. And that's important because, you know, drugs get onto the market, prescription drugs anyway, get onto the market um, because of clinical trials that are done by vested interests in carefully selected patients, and they tend to give us, the trials do, they tend to give us optimistic pictures of drugs, benefits, and side effects. And in the real world, whether it's for diabetes or heart disease or pain, drugs tend to be less effective and less safe than the clinical trials that brought drugs to market in the first place. So uh, that's the other other big hat. My other hats are I do some teaching, I do some administration, um, but uh, primarily a clinician scientist. The unreported or barely reported negatives with various medications seems to be a, a big problem I've noticed just with researching certain substances that there will be things that suddenly become well known as negatives, which in every initial clinical trial that I read never showed up. And it mm -hmm. seems people talk about how sort of the final stage of a medicine's trial is really when it enters the public, it's nice to see that there is a an ability to use big data to find these lesser known reactions because they affect tons of patients, but you're seeing a patient and they have this reaction. You've heard of some people who've had that reaction. 
but there's nothing in the, the real, you know, literature on it. So it's a very interesting field trying to figure out what is real, what is not. Yeah, it, it, you've hit the nail on the head. And it's uh, it, sometimes it's easy to do that, right? It's easy, like to say it's an anticoagulant and someone look at bleeding as the outcome um, or an anti-inflammatory, an NSAID and bleeding. But sometimes the side effects are um, are harder to discern. And, and unfortunately, you know, with these data sets are massive, but they're dumb, right? So you, I don't know if I can find a patient, for example, who's been prescribed an opioid and who has been hospitalized for an overdose, but I don't know the circumstances. I, I can draw inferences about the dose that he might be on, but that's some judgment involved there and some assumptions that may or may not be correct. But there's a lot, there's a lot of detailed patient level information that we don't have access to. So we have to design the studies with those limitations in mind. And there are all kinds of studies I'd love to do if I had more informative data, but it is what it is. Taking us into opioids, you recently were working on a paper where you sort of highlighted this 1980 paper, this very tiny bit of information about the prevalence of adverse reactions in terms of addiction or abuse with opioids. But it turned into this huge piece of evidence that was widely cited as saying more than it really did. Can you just tell us about that paper and how it influenced prescribing? Yeah, I think this, uh, I think the, the paper is referred to colloquially as the Porter and Jick study. And so what that study is, is a five-sentence letter to the editor that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in uh, early 1980, I think. And in it, uh, Herschel Jick is the senior author. He's a, he must be in his 80s or 90s now. He's a, I guess he must be retired, but he was a drug safety researcher um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he uh, what he and his colleague, Jane Porter, did was they went through their records of around 12,000 or so uh, hospitalized patients. And they, um, well, it's actually kind of hard to know what they did because you can only describe so much of your methods in five <laughs> sentences. But they, they came up with, they, they drew the inference that in these hospitalized patients, uh, only I think four of the 12,000 or whatever it was, who had received opioids had um, evidence of addiction. Now, I don't know the veracity of the, the claim there. I mean, I think it's fair to say that most people who get put on opioids don't end up becoming addicted to opioids. The problem is that that paper, the problem is how that paper was exploited by what I'll call the pain lobby. And we weren't the first to discover this. I mean, it's been known for a long time. And in fact, Barry Meyer, who uh, wrote Painkiller, and Sam Quinones, who wrote um, Dreamland, both uh, excellent books, uh, actually discuss the, the paper and its implications at some length. But um, just for some context, maybe I'll just back up a little bit. But um, as a far I was a pharmacist from 1990 to 1995. And when someone came to the pharmacy with a prescription for MS content, sustained release morphine, or even immediate release, it was almost always the case that they had cancer. And we had the occasional patient who was on, you know, Tylenol 3 or pentazacine or meperidine, drugs that we almost never see nowadays uh, for chronic pain. But it wasn't really very common for, for opioids to be used for chronic pain. We're now in a very different, 10 years after that, like from 2000 to 2005, it, it became very, very common. And that had to do with, um, uh, it's complicated, but it, it had to do in no small measure with uh, doctors getting the message that opioids could be used safely and effectively over the long term. And one of the key bits of information that was leveraged to help doctors become more comfortable prescribing opioids was uh, the reassurance that addiction was rare. And so the Porter and Jick study was actually used to help support that claim. And I think it was successful for a couple of reasons. One is, despite being only five sentences long, um, the title was pretty declarative. I mean, the title was Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics, as dumb a word as narcotics is. I mean, that was used in the 80s. But it, uh, the title was declarative. The source journal, New England, was about as prominent as they come. And it was also inaccessible electronically. I mean, if you wanted to see that Porter and Jick study prior to 2010, you would have had to go to a library and dig it out. It was you couldn't just. It wasn't even available in the New England's archives until 2010 online. So uh, you take a doctor who, in 1999 or 2001, is at a continuing medical education event or at a fancy restaurant that had listened to a pain expert telling him that not only uh, are opioids effective in the long term. They can be used safely, and I know that your primary concern is addiction. Well, here's the New England Journal of Medicine 
1980, showing just how rare this is. And so I think this is probably a longer answer than you wanted, Seth, but it, it, I think the paper, uh, what we showed is it was cited more than 600 times, but what we that's easy to do. What we showed is the temporal distribution of those sites. There was a huge surge in the mid-1990s after OxyContin was launched. And about uh, just shy of three quarters of all citing articles effectively parroted the main message of the title, which was that addiction was rare. Uh, so I think that in, in a sense, it was the, uh, the article and how it was cited over and over again to help craft this narrative uh, that helped reassure doctors uh, that they could use opioids more safely. And, you know, we are in the business of trying to relieve suffering. So, and pain is one of the most common forms of suffering we see. So to suddenly be told that, hey, the, these opioids that you've been avoiding so long for this massive group of patients with chronic pain, you don't need to worry. They work and they're safe, I think was one we were quite happy to hear. And was it true for a time prior to that, that pain was really not being treated to the best extent possible? So there was an argument that there should be a rise in prescribing? Yeah, so I think you'll get different answers to that depending on who you ask. Um, I think there isn't a kernel of truth in that there. I believe that there are some people with chronic pain whose lives can be improved by the careful use of opioids. But it's important to realize that the goal of I mean, I don't mean to sound glib about this, but the goal of opioids, the goal of any pain medicine, actually, isn't simply pain relief. The goal of prescribing a pain medicine to a patient is to, like any drug, is to impart more benefit than harm. And of course, pain relief is subsumed under benefit, as is improved function and improved quality of life and, you know, and so on. Um, the problem with opioids is that the, the assessment of benefits versus harms can change over time and become unfavorable. Uh, and uh, it's especially challenging when I'm conscious of the fact that I'm answering a different question, but uh, I think it's, now that I've begun, I'll just keep, keep talking. Someone who is really being helped more than harmed on their fifth day of an opioid can end up being harmed more than helped at six months or six years just because of what happens during the course um, of, of clinical care of these patients. But, but the more direct answer to your question is, I think it's fair to say that in 1990, chronic pain wasn't being treated um, as well as it might be because there were some people who, who might have been benefited from opioids who were instead being put on NSAIDs and having bleeds or being put on garbage drugs like Tolwin or Demerol, whereas something uh, like pure agonist would, would probably have benefited them provided it was used judiciously. And companies sort of ran with this rhetoric. And I've noticed I'm researching methaquilone right now. And it's not really used anymore. But you saw the same exact kind of stuff happening in terms of how companies ran with the messaging and a very strong focus when talking to physicians that this primary concern, which even in the 1960s was addiction in these cases, is just really not an issue. So if you could provide any kind of evidence that the rate is under 1% or something, then it sounds quite nice. What does the rate actually seem to be for acute pain and then for people put on opioids for chronic pain? I don't think anyone can answer that question with confidence. Um, we just don't have good data. The, um, the, I used to think the best available evidence in terms of the, um, the risk of addiction uh, came from a study published, I think, in 2005 by Kevin Voles uh, from, uh, I want to say, New Mexico or Arizona. Um, and he uh, estimated from his review of the literature that it was on the order of about 10%, which just, even to me, struck me as high. In the context of preparing the new uh, Canadian opioid guideline, we went through his paper and we found some concerns with um, how the data had been used. And, and we figured that the estimate was somewhere in the order of 5%. But even that is not, you know, it's hard to be really confident in that. Um, and I think you know, whether it's 2% or 3% or 4% or 5 I, I don't really know. If even 1% or 2% of them are becoming addicted, and there are a whole host of problems aside from that, I think it's 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 an important um, it's an important issue. So if there are instances where people are being prescribed opioids for an acute situation and they go on to end up using them longer, what would change in prescribing to try and reduce the frequency with which that happens? I mean, I know there's sort of a focus now on shorter durations of opioid prescribing for acute issues and things of that sort. So what could actually be done to keep that from happening? Well, uh, it's important to proceed in answering this question by making the point again that there are, there are many, many other harms 
that befall patients uh, on opioids aside from addiction, and they are very often not appreciated as harms or even as drug-related, you know, things like depression and, you know, in some people, worsening of pain itself, their hyperalgesia. I think physical dependence is rightly construed uh, as a harm. Um, but from an addiction perspective, I think, you know, there certainly are uh, individual factors that are going to predispose someone, um, whether it's a history of trauma as a child or a history of mental illness that isn't uh, hasn't been optimally dealt with or other um, addictive behaviors in the past. But I, I can't help. My, my my clinical experience here tells me that there, and and it's I think it's intuitive that there are going to be genetic factors that I don't think are well characterized yet. Uh, I think if you take a thousand people and you expose them all to you know seven days of uh, oxycodone, well-intentioned oxycodone, there are going to be some people in that group uh, who just love how it takes away not just the physical pain, but maybe some other emotional pain that they've been dealing with or some other, there are going to be factors, whether it's genetic or sociodemographic or other other aspects of a patient's overall makeup that predispose them to this particular kind of harm. And I don't profess to know what those things are, but I think the way to, the, the way to minimize the harm to patients is to really be, uh, is to start opioids less Readily, and I'm not saying we shouldn't use them. I prescribe them all the time myself. But I, when I when I do, I um, I always kind of weigh what the alternatives might be for the for a given patient based upon the kind of pain they've got and what I know about their history. Um, I think the dose is a critical issue. I think that you know the days of putting people up on five six hundred milligrams of morphine or equivalent uh, that's just it, you know there are some people who are stuck on those doses now. But I think it's it's wrong in 2017 to start somebody on opioids and get them to doses like that. So I think resorting to opioids less readily, being prepared to abandon therapy at some point, you know, I, 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 the, you know, when it becomes clear, like, you know, defining at the outset of therapy, what's going to constitute benefit here? What, what, when are we going to, um, you know, what's going to, uh, how are we going to define benefit and success? Because I think you shouldn't really start opioids on a patient with chronic pain in particular without some plan for stopping them. I mean, if you don't do that, the person's going to stay on opioids. And that is uh Sometimes, okay, but more often than not, I think it's not a good idea. There's been some pushback against the idea that there's any real significant connection between or direct connection between the prescribing of opioids in these situations and the recreational use and going to heroin and other black market substances because of the focus on, um, from their point of view, on a lot of this is coming from diversion or from people who were illegitimately getting opioids. They were sort of seeking opioids opioids to start with they didn't have a true issue so some people feel that the that the real rate of addiction may actually be quite small although that still could be an argument against widespread prescribing because if you have you know you're going to increase diversion if you have a lot of opioids sitting around your medicine cabinet so that's yeah. still a, a reason to be cautious but it seems you know how much is it real patients who are going on versus just more opioids that are readily available and other people use them yeah it, oh it's certainly i think all, both of those things are at play um i think you're right it's very common for docs to send especially the surgeons to send patients home after a minor procedure with uh, far more opioids than they need. There was a study in Annals of Surgery last, uh, I want to say December, that uh, effectively did pill, pill counts. And I, I think there were six types of minor surgery, if I recall. But the bottom line is that uh, 72% of all opioid tablets that were prescribed, sorry, that were dispensed after a minor surgical procedure went unconsumed. And so there's a lot of medicine cabinets out there that have got opioids in them. Uh, and I think you're right that a lot of people who end up getting into trouble are using opioids that were prescribed to someone else, whether it's a relative or or what have you. Um, and that is one reason to you know, prescribe a little more judiciously, not give somebody 60 tablets when they might only need eight or 12. But it is, I mean, uh, I think you'd have a hard time finding a physician who who looks after patients with pain, who has not seen a patient who is suffering from addiction, whose who's first taste of opioids began with a well-intentioned prescription. I, I have more than I can count. I've been doing this for 20 years now, I guess. And, the, and it's not even, I worry that when we focus on addiction, we, and I don't mean to come back, don't mean to keep coming back to this, but it really is an important point. Um, there are so many people out there with chronic pain who technically don't they're not addicted. They haven't lost control over their medic 
medication use and they don't view themselves as being harmed. They're following the doctor's uh, orders to the letter or pretty close to the letter. And yet they are still, uh, not all of them, but but some of them are still being harmed. And those are those are the ones that I, uh, I think are a real challenge. Um, it's, it's a bit off the topic of your question, so I don't, I don't mean to hijack the discussion. Um, I think your, your question uh, pertained, uh, Seth, to how to go about minimizing the risk. And I think the minimizing the risk is um, using opioids more selectively, prescribing them uh, for shorter initial durations. And when you make the decision to proceed with chronic opioid therapy, keep the dose low, minimize the use of benzodiazepines and other sedating drugs and alcohol. Uh, and, you know, watch the patient closely to sort of see over time, uh, do they still appear to be deriving benefit that exceeds the potential, uh, the harms? Uh, and, and there again, the harms, uh, the, 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 pro, the pro, it's so easy to say, right? Let's weigh the benefits versus risks uh, or benefits versus harms, I should say. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do when the harms are a cult. Uh, and the benefits, you know, I think for some people, this, this rankles the pain community and some pain doctors, but it's true that for some people, the primary benefit of opioids is the avoidance of withdrawal. And, and the higher the daily dose is, the, the more likely that is the, uh, to be the case. Uh, it's, it's not a message that's well received, but, you know, if, and the, and the patients, you, you can understand how an, how an intelligent patient might uh, infer that not only are opioids working, but they are needed, right? Because when they don't take them, they feel like shit and they feel horrible. Their pain comes back. Um, and it's not just abdominal pain and muscle pain. I mean, it might be some fascinating research on withdrawal associated injury pain. You know, so the, here's the idea is that you injured your ankle when you were uh, 19 uh, and it's all healed up now, but I put you on opioids for some other problem. And when you come off the opioids, the, the pain flares up in your ankle. It was actually free of pain when you started the opioid therapy. Why that happens, I don't know. Um, my point is that uh, dependence is uh, a malignant process in some ways because it can lead patients to believe uh, th that the that they not only are opioids helping them but they need them to the function and so back to my sort of larger point weighing the risks versus the benefits becomes really really hard and the benefits are obfuscated by the avoidance of withdrawal and the harms have things aside from addiction and aside from overdoses and aside from you know dying that aren't appreciated this this, this is why um, I adopt the views about opioids that constantly chirping about on Twitter whether it's the 1980s or 2010s it seems as you were saying there's a real focus on addiction and, and even within prescribing there's always been this focus on that as the the ultimate harm and perhaps for a time it was due to a lack of information about other harms but now it seems there's a growing awareness of as you were talking about the differences in pain sensitivity as a result of opioid use or depression, even perhaps structural brain changes and endocrine effects. Can you talk about what those other negatives of constantly being on opioids could be? So, you know, if I was to list the adverse effects think doctors to be aware of, you know, I might start with constipation. It sounds like an annoyance, um, but I have had people die under my care with, and the primary reason they died was constipation, colonic perforation or what have you. It's not very common, but it happens. Um, the endocrine effects are important. I mean, it, it, there's a very strong association uh, in men with testosterone suppression, but even in women, uh, infertility and, uh, and osteoporosis. We have shown, as have others, I think fairly convincingly, that opioids are a dose-dependent and independent risk factor for motor vehicle collisions. I mean, that shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, it, it's not a high relative risk, but when you think about the number of people on, on opioids, even at modest doses, you know, it's a, it's, it's a public safety issue. Um, there's a hyperalgesia, which is something that I think gets resisted. Uh, you know, I've certainly seen people who have just, they started with opioids for back pain and I see them two or three years later and they've got what seems like fibromyalgia. You touch, you just take their hand and they are, they, they are in pain from non-noxious stimuli. And, uh, you know, in a couple of instances, I've helped people come down, either using ketamine or you know, as an MD antagonist or, or just coming down on their opioids. It's, it's amazing how people will sometimes feel better uh, and less pain and an even better mood. You touched on depression. I am convinced 
that in some people opioids are a component cause and it's you know because depression is so common and it might be idiopathic or it might be related of course chronic pain itself could cause depression but the the notion that opioids might play a role in depression or even conceivably suicide and i believe they do uh is one that is resisted by pain patients and by the pain thought leaders who got us into this mess in the first place i say suicide uh i, I published a paper in 2004 or 5 um i think it was in um I can't remember what it was called. It was entitled Medical Illness and Suicide in the Elderly. And what we did is we looked at around 1,300 elder suicides. It was a case control study. So we had several thousand people who didn't die of suicides. And we we looked at people's medical illnesses defined in a reasonably rigorous way using prescription medications. So we could define diabetes, we could define gout, we could define glaucoma, and so on. Um, And by far, the strongest association between medical therapy and suicide was in people who had received opioids. And, and in particular, the more potent, the stronger opioids, the morphine, oxycodone, hydromorphone drugs. Now, there are multiple reasons why that association might be there, right? It might be because of the pain. It might be because of, might have been cancer patients. I mean, there's, there's, there are many ways in which that association might not be a direct cause and effect one. But if you accept that in some, and I think this is hard to refute, if you accept that in some people, opioids are a cause of depression that A, can be treatment resistant and uh, B, can, can might not be a appreciated as drug-related, it's not hard to make the claim that sometimes suicides might result from opioids, and especially when they're tapered quickly. It's so dysphoric for people who are on high doses to have the drugs yanked away from them by uh, by docs who are just trying to comply with a regulatory edict, or they don't want to be tapped on the shoulder by the DEA or whatever their licensing body is in Canada. like you know, as much as it is a bad idea to get people onto high dose opioids, you make a bad situation worse when you take the drugs away suddenly. This is why I'm I try to advocate not just on Twitter but to my patients the potential merits of tapering. And often they don't want to, but you know when they do, uh, got somebody in 500 morphine a day, and you know over time can help him or her you know get down to you know 200 or 100. Uh, when it's in, when the patient is motivated and they got good supports at home, they'll often tell you that they 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 feel better on the lower doses. I think their mood improves, their their function often improves, and the daughter or son will see I got my dad back. Like it's it's it, this actually happens. So anyway, there's a whole there's a whole litany of side effects there that um, yeah. I mean I I think the, the dependence. Uh, is one that really bothers me almost as much as any of them because it really does lead patients and doctors, I think, to attach more um, to, to attach more significance to the to the utility of opioids than the drugs themselves warrant, especially as tolerance has set in over time and maybe some hyperalgesia has set in. Like we know that these drugs just don't work as well at 90 days as they did in the, the first few days of therapy. Um, and when you when you couple tolerance and maybe some hyperalgesia with the development of dependence, I mean, you quickly get yourself into a corner. And when you're dealing with people who are on opioids for especially chronic pain, presumably a large portion are also on other drugs that can not only interact, but also maybe potentiate some of the acute harms like benzodiazepines, pregabalin, even GHB or something for sleep. And these are, I've seen a lot of case reports where these kinds of prescribing practices pop up. How do people deal with this? I mean, I think it would there would be a lot of hesitation to put somebody on two or three depressant medications. Oh, man. I Well, I, I think there should be. Um, I will tell you that uh, it, a few months ago, I saw a patient, too many details, but it was a woman who was pregnant. And I uh, she had a complication of pregnancy. She was in around 30 weeks, and uh, but she had chronic pain. And I went to see her, and she was under the care of. And I'm telling you this anecdote is this is a scenario that is not exactly uncommon, at least in Canada. I don't know about the U.S., but she was under the care of two physicians, and one was a pain doc, one was a psychiatrist. And uh, she was on um, roughly, I mean, there's always some estimation here, but she was on around 400 milligrams of morphine or equivalent, including occasional doses of intramuscular morphine that her pain doc provided her. Um, and her psychiatrist had her on no fewer than six different psychotropics, including two benzos, an antipsychotic, uh, I can't remember the other ones, but I was just blown away 
uh, by the fact that this, you know, this isn't some overworked, busy general practitioner who's just, these are, these are people who have specialty training in the fields of pain management and psychiatry who, you know, there, there is no possible way that this is being held by the concoction that she was put on. It's not an uncommon occurrence at all to see people who are on opioids and benzos, often typically for sleep, you know, or gabapentin or maybe gabapentin, as you say. We don't have a lot of GHB, at least, at least prescribed GHB in Canada, but, um, you know, baclofen. There's all kinds of other drugs that are sedating and it's, you know, it's one plus one is five. It's just, it's, it's pharmacodynamics. It's not, it's not complicated. So, I mean, you'd think that, um, I mean, intuitively, putting somebody on an opioid, um, especially a higher dose uh, opioid, it, together with uh, another CNS depressant, would be something that we try and avoid. But, but especially when it comes to benzos, we're just so comfortable, or, or gabapentin is another one. Um, we're just so comfortable prescribing those drugs. Um, not that we should be, but we are. That it's inevitable that people end up on on both of them. So it's it's not at all uncommon, at least in Canada, to see somebody who's on, you know, 30 or 40 milligrams of hydromorphone a day or, or 100 mics of fentanyl uh, in a patch, who's also on quetiapine to help them sleep and lorazepam for, you know, anxiety or alprazolam for anxiety. Yeah, it's, it's not that a cautious use of opioids and benzos is never appropriate, but I think, um, I think it's um, more often than not, it's the sort of thing that's best avoided. And there's another kind of combination which has some interesting effects, and I'm not sure necessarily how significant the issue is, but it's with opioids and serotonergic drugs. It mm. seems, and we've known this since pethidine, that there are certain opioids which seem to have a risk of serotonin syndrome with other serotonergic drugs. Is that a major risk and what drugs are implicated? Well, um, so when we see serotonin toxicity, as you know, it's generally um, because we've taken two drugs or more that augment serotonin transition, transmission by different mechanisms. You know, classic would be uh, a tramadol and an SSRI. I mean, I've seen that myself a couple of times, low doses of those drugs. Um, you know, I suppose the real classics involve MAOIs and, and uh, meperidine or pethidine. We just don't, we almost never see, I haven't seen a patient on meperidine in 15 years. And uh, probably once a year, I'll see somebody on an MAO inhibitor. So from, from, for my money, I would say that, you know, I think it's a concern with fentanyl and it's a concern with, um, with tramadol because the parent compound tramadol is really an SNRI like, like venlafaxine is. I think the, I wouldn't be surprised if it could happen with other opioids too. I just don't see it very often. And so I, I wonder if there's something about an individual's um, makeup. And, and again, this might be genetic. I don't mean to speculate too wildly, but there's a lot of things we don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some polymorphism in the serotonin transporter, for example, that made someone more prone to um, developing uh, serotonin toxicity when they combine um, fentanyl with uh, with an SSRI, but uh, I have seen thousands of people on opioids, and I have seen only dozens of people with serotonin toxicity, and those are more often people who are taking a recreational drug that they thought was MDMA and it wasn't. So, uh, yeah, I've only seen a, a little bit of information about it, so I wasn't sure how common it actually appears to I think to it's be. pretty uncommon, yeah. 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 I, I think yeah. tramadol is a, a drug I, I particularly like to hate, and, and that's one where I, you know, I, I have seen... And maybe I'm just being more vigilant, but uh, but you know pharmacologically, I think it makes more sense that tramadol would would be more more prone to this, and and it's problematic because it's not even appreciated as an opioid by many prescribers. I've uh, talked about a few different opioids on the drug classroom, and and the one which even patients seem to always talk about disliking is tramadol. And when that's combined with skepticism of the benefits, is there really any place for tramadol? And can you talk about why it seems to be a, uh, what is different about its pharmacology that leads to it being a higher mm -hmm. risk than just a pure opioid? Well, I'm not sure that it's higher risk. I mean, tramadol is, a, and I'll get a bit pointy-headed here because I know you your audience knows a lot about drugs. So uh, tramadol itself isn't an opioid. I mean, it, it, it binds to the opioid receptor with very low affinity. Um, it, the parent compound is primarily a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, and it's converted to a variety of metabolites. One, they've got the clever names M1, M2, M3. But M1, which I think is O-desmethyltramadol, it's just a demethylated tramadol, is a reasonably good mu agonist. So um, the, the, the problem is that the conversion of tramadol to its opioid metabolite is affected by a, a liver enzyme, cytochrome P450 2D6, the same enzyme that turns codeine, a mostly inactive drug, into morphine by uh, demethylating it, turns tramadol into 
M1 by demethylating it. And that enzyme varies tremendously from person to person. So, you know, 6 or 7% of the North American population doesn't have any CYP2D6. And so if I put somebody on 50 of tramadol um, and they don't have any 2D6, they're not getting any opioid. All they're getting is the venlafaxine kind of parent compound. On the other hand, if I have a patient who's got who's got a multiple copies of the CYP2D6 gene, as about a third of the population in Middle East does or Eastern Africa, they will turn tramadol into an opioid like nobody's business. And so when I, when, if I put somebody in tramadol, what I'm really doing is I'm giving them a mixture of venlafaxine and morphine, to be simplistic about it, in an unknown ratio. I just don't know. And uh, so it's not that tramadol can't help some people. I mean, I have seen people uh, who uh, who are a bit on tramadol at modest doses, who, who, as far as I can tell, seem to be being helped more than harmed, which again is the overall, the overarching goal of drug therapy. And I'm not going to tinker with that. I'm not, I'll just continue it, let them stay on it. But I think it's really hard to justify putting somebody on tramadol, you know, the, because you don't know what you're giving them. Even if you happen to know what their genotype was, you know, let's say that my genotype defines me as having a normal CYP2D6 activity. Well, if I'm on bupropion or if I'm on uh, any number of drugs that turn off CYP2D6, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get any opioid out of the mix. So the, the, the problem with tramadol is, it, A, it's pharmacology, B, it's perception and it's marketing. I mean, it's marketed as having a dual mechanism of analgesia, right? Uh, you, know, you, you get a bit of SS, SNRI, you get a bit of opioid, as if it were that simple. And at least in Canada, it's not even a controlled substance. I, I appreciate that that um, controlled substances laws have their downsides, but my worry is that docs in particular think that tramadol, some docs think it's not an opioid at all. They, th- they think it's somehow some magical painkiller that isn't an opioid because if it was an opioid, it would need a special prescription. And so I've looked after people who have been put on tramadol by docs who, you know, didn't want to put the patient on opioids. And, you know, after a month, the patients, they try to come off of it and they got horrible insomnia and they're miserable. And, and the reason why in Canada it's the way it is, is because is because of pressure from the manufacturers, Purdue and others. Uh, in about 10 years ago, when our regulator was about to put tramadol into the schedule of controlled substances, there was uh, a pushback from people who stood to make money and uh, and Health Canada caved. And so I think um, that that's one of the reasons I have a bit of a beef against tramadol. But I think from a, from a purely pharmacological perspective, it doesn't make sense to treat pain with tramadol because you don't, you know, if, if I want to give somebody venlafaxine and morphine, I just as soon go ahead and give them the drugs in known quantities as opposed to rolling the dice and giving them tramadol and have no clue on balance what they're getting. And to some extent, this also applies for, you know, there's different reasons, but for codeine, which is also yeah. 2D6, is there mm. really much of a role for codeine? Because it seems, again, no, you're no. giving a random dose of morphine. Yeah, I, the, the codeine is, it's, it's an inherently irrational drug. It's, and it's, I think it's a little less dangerous than tramadol because you don't have the SNRI issues quite as much. But the fact is, you know, the docs have become, courtesy of Tylenol 3, uh, uh, in particular, Tylenol 2 and 3, we've just become super comfortable giving people codeine. In Canada, you can buy 8 milligrams of codeine per tablet without a prescription. Just go to the pharmacy and you spend $7 and you got, you know, you have 100 tablets of 8 milligrams of codeine with acetaminophen or ASA. Um, but codeine itself has no inherent analgesic activity. It's again the 2D6 enzyme. So if I give somebody a prescription for 60 milligrams of codeine, what I'm really doing is giving them an unknown amount of morphine. Um, it might be zero. If they got, if they're a poor 2D6, a slow 2D6, they will get zero morphine. And uh, if they're an ultra rapid metabolizer 2D6, they might get, uh, you know, 10 or 12. I'm not quite sure. It'll, it'll be dependent on a variety of other factors because codeine's got other pathways. Um, that might or may not, not be subject to other influences. But the bottom line is that codeine is irrational uh, as a drug. If, so when I have a resident who wants to give a patient codeine, I say, you know what? If the patient needs an opioid, just go ahead and give them morphine uh, because at least you know or you, or you have a better sense of what you're giving them. You, you, just, you just don't know what you're doing with codeine. One of the ways I initially encountered your posts was because of things uh, in terms of misinformation in the media, which had really become quite prominent, and this applied to W18 and also to carfentanil. Can you talk about that kind of misinformation and how it impacts the, the viewpoint of not only users 
users or prescribers or in terms of evaluating the harms of these drugs, because in the case of W18, it was claimed to be an opioid, but it wasn't an opioid. In the case of carfentanil, it's it's not really, the dosing is not as problematic as some people think, but these are very widespread claims. Well, the claims that I myself fell for, I mean, the, you know, when you see something, you know, when you hear that W18 is, uh, what is it, 10,000 times more potent than than morphine, um, you sort of automatically uh, assume, well, I think it's it's normal to automatically assume that there must be some truth to the statement. People just pull these numbers out of, out of nowhere. Uh, but when you dig into it a little bit, you find there's really nothing to the claim. And in fact, W18, I don't even think binds to opioid receptors at all. So uh, whereas carfentanil clearly does, um, but most of what we know from carfentanil, uh, well, we know very little actually about what the, the toxic dose in people is. I'm pretty sure it's not 10, it's not 100 times more potent than fentanyl. The, um, the LD50, the only I did a little Twitter thread on this a month or two ago. Um, I think it's what you're referring to is that there was a, a mouth, uh, a murine study of some sort. And if I recall correctly, the, the LD50 in mice was, was not that different from fentanyl itself. So, I mean, carfentanil is clearly an opioid and it's, I think it's probably somewhat more potent than fentanyl, but you know, I don't think it's correct to say that a grain of the stuff, that a, you know, a speck of the stuff is going to kill you. This misinformation is hard to extinguish. I mean, there's, you'll still occasionally see somebody tweet about W18 being a killer opioid. Um, I think the carfentanil misinformation is going to probably stay. I'm going to call it misinformation. I, we don't, there's a lot of uncertainties about exactly how much carfentanil is equivalent to 100 mics of fentanyl. I don't know. And maybe one day we will know. But um, un, until then, we're probably still going to have media outlets giving these alarmist kind of headlines. Um, I think there's pros and cons to it. I mean, I think in, in I think it's good for people to be aware of the fact that the illegal drug supply, the street drug supply, is about as dangerous as it has ever been. Um, and I think you know a lot more about this topic than I do. But like I, 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 it's my impression that people are in large part dying because they are they're not quite sure what they're getting in terms of exactly what drug and exactly how much. Uh, I think the people who with addictions who are dying that way uh, are going to be using despite uh, despite you know knowing uh, that the uncertainty is there. But I I think that for the you know the 17 year old high school student who goes to a party and is uh, and is given a pill of something that, uh, you know, looks like a totally legitimate Norco tablet, um, you know, and, and reality has 7,000 mics of fentanyl in it, which is, you know, that happens. Uh, it's good for them to be, frankly, a little bit um, to, to, to shy away from taking the tablet. Just uh, I'm not sure if you share my view on that, but the, the and I might not have answered your question as clearly as I could have. The One of the concerns I have with the misinformation or the the fervor that's out there about carfentanil in particular is I, I worry that first responders uh, who are called to someone who's overdosed, actually needs naloxone five minutes ago, are going to be spending a little bit too much time protecting themselves against a threat that they don't need to worry about. You know, putting on, I find to go ahead, put on gloves and put on a mask if you want to. But, you know, when people talk about not going near the overdose or putting on a hazmat suit to go look after somebody who's had an opi- opiate overdose. I mean, that's just craziness. And uh, somewhere someone's going to die because they didn't get naloxone or vent- ventilation in a timely enough fashion because people were scared for their own safety uh, because of the alarmism that's out there. So can we basically just rule out for the most part this idea that if somebody is, they have an overdose because of fentanyl or, or a derivative, that there is a high likelihood of an emergency responder becoming intoxicated due to some weird exposure method yeah, touching they, them or no it's not going to happen from touching them it's just not full stop not going to happen yeah um, the primary worry would be inhalational exposure and so I think that would be I mean you'd have to walk into a cloud of carfentanil <laughs> suspended in the air I mean if there was some sort of I don't know some sort of explosion or some sort of uh, you know package that gets ripped open and then particles are suspended I suppose that would be an immediate I, I would think that could be an immediate threat to anyone in the vicinity especially in a closed space. But I'm, I'm not about to dip my hand in a fentanyl, but I mean, if I did, I would just wash it off. Um, and um, But I think that there, you know, you see reports, several reports now in the media of police officers who claim to have been uh, rendered unconscious and then revived with naloxone. And it's tough because you don't, you don't want to say the person is, um, they, they very clearly believe that's what happened to them. But uh, it's really hard to understand how that could be. And when you hear the person describe 
I've felt for the last two or three weeks like my head has been in a vice. I mean, that's not somebody. That, that is not a consequence of a transient opioid overdose. If I'm, an, I, I'm opioid naive right now, and if I inadvertently had an opioid, had an overdose of fentanyl for whatever reason, um, and I was revived, I'm not going to feel like my head has been in a vice for the next two weeks. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And so I think that there's a bit of the nocebo effect there, sort of the, the, the there's this perception that, uh, well, I mean, that's not the right term, but I mean, I think that there's a, there's a, a belief in the first responder community that this is a real serious hazard. And I think the situations in which it's going to be a real serious hazard are very, very limited. And it would be really unfortunate if uh, someone was deprived timely access to medical care because of unwarranted fear on the part of uh, first responders, which is why I think it's important for toxicologists and the ACMT and the AACT to, to issue, as they have of, of recently, um, statements to the effect that this is just not something to worry about. And all of these issues, the ones that are real, the ones that are not in terms of affecting first responders, affecting the users themselves, it all seems to, at least from my perspective, come back to at least 90% of it to prohibition. And I know you have a more open stance towards reforming the policies to reduce this. What is your view on prohibition, the connection to the opioid epidemic, and what we should do about it? Well, um, yeah, so I'm not I'm not really a policy guy, uh, but it seems to me that uh, people are dying in part because they are uh, they don't know what they're getting. Uh, and I think that it just seems if, if you if you approach this not as a criminal problem, but as a as a public health problem, and you realize that one of the reasons why people are, you know, why, why fentanyl is being added to pills and heroin and carfentanil is making its way into the drug supply is because of prohibition. And this is why people are losing their children and their friends by the thousands. It doesn't take very long to realize that maybe that's not the right way to go about things. We could take lessons from Switzerland or Netherlands or Portugal or whoever else has a more progressive approach. It's tough in the U.S. with Jeff Sessions as your AG for the next couple of days. Um, in fact, it'll probably be out by the time your podcast airs. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I think my view is that if people can put into their bodies what they want, provided that it doesn't result in harm to others. Um, and if someone's going to, you know, I've looked after too many people who have taken, who've died from taking what they thought was a single tablet of ecstasy that turned out to be PMA or, or something like that. And they come to temp- hospital with temperatures of 107 and, you know, you, you know, they're going to die. It, it, the, there are just far too many people dying from the consequences of prohibition. I think a case can very easily be made to revise drug laws. The problem is it's political suicide uh, to do that. Um, I'm not a politician, but I I think that's why politicians are so uh, resistant to it. The main response, it seems, to this supposed epidemic really is cracking down on, I know I saw you recently talking about efforts to prevent the supply from coming into Canada, and then there's other efforts to, say, crack down on on making certain fentanyl derivatives illegal or U47700 illegal sort of research chemicals and things of that sort. And it all makes sense if you're sort of only looking at it in a very cursory way, but it doesn't get to the the core issue of why is the heroin market so consistently bad? And that really is not something that would be combated by these policy changes, as far as I can tell. And it seems as though having somebody, you know, have access to pure oxycodone at a reasonable dose is probably safer than having them go on the market and receiving who knows what. So it's unfortunate that argument has not really entered into the discussion. It's been mainly on how can we expand prohibition to cover more things? Yeah, no, it's it's very close-minded. It's not a public health approach at all. I mean, we must have at least six randomized trials now of supervised injectable heroin, dimorphine. Um, and there's a, 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 a small clutch of patients, I think, in Vancouver, and I think we'll probably see it here in Toronto soon enough, who are going, I don't know, a few times a day to the clinic and they're in, injecting heroin. And, and you know what? They're not dying in McDonald's bathrooms and they're not spreading hepatitis C and HIV. And they're maybe in some instances holding down jobs. And and that, that's that got to pay for itself as a public health intervention. Like, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, I was particularly um, ticked uh, at our federal government government for 
you know, investing money in um, trying to prevent the flow of fentanyl into uh, into Canada. You know, good luck with that. You could fit, a, I'm sure, a several million doses of fentanyl into something the size of a shoebox. Um, it's nothing to get that passed. Uh, a border services agent. You, you have no hope in hell of preventing its influx. Um, you're you're going to intercept some, sure, but uh, you know it's that that money could be spent in getting people access to Suboxone if they want it, or you know, or you know, some other avenue of care that has some evidence behind it, as opposed to something that's mostly being done for political points. So yeah, it's I mean it's complicated. If it was, if this was an easy issue, I mean, it would already have been solved. But I mean, there there are so many things that we could be doing differently. And I think I think you know I don't don't know how many people have to die before we start taking a long hard look at our, our drug laws. You know, it's happening with cannabis in Canada finally. But you know, the same the same arguments that apply to cannabis apply to pretty much everything else. So uh, I think uh, you, you and I are probably in the same page in that, I think. And even if you're coming from the stance of opioids are really an issue and the opioid epidemic is an issue, it may actually be the case that alternative drugs that are otherwise sometimes demonized could be part of the solution. And that would include, as far as I can tell, cannabis, which I know you've sure. talked a little about. There's also Kratom, and mm -hmm. Kratom received a lot of attention in the U.S. because the DEA and, and whatnot. And then Ibogaine, which I think is available in Canada for treating. Just, yeah, just became available. I mean, uh, I, I've never prescribed, I think it's actually pronounced Ibogaine, believe it or not. I, I, I mean, look, I had to give a talk on uh, loperamide toxicity a couple of years ago, and I ended up looking into a, with a weird ECG, and I thought maybe that was the drug, and I was trying to find its pronunciation. I, I've been calling it Ibogaine all along. It doesn't really matter what's, how it's pronounced, but the cannabis in particular, I mean, you know, there's a big lobby out there, I think, that likes to pretend that cannabis has no downsides, which is crazy. Of course it has some. But, I mean, man, if you can get a patient off of high-dose opioids and onto cannabis instead, I mean, that's got to be a win in any scenario, right? The, um, and if, 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 if people can use lower doses of opioids or not go to opioids or not even, I mean, even benzodiazepine. If somebody said to me, listen, I really have trouble falling asleep. Um, in fact, I had this exact scenario happen um, not, not that long ago, and I wrote a piece in, in CMAJ about cannabis. It was funny. I, I, I got this. I'm not sure much time you want me to spend on this, but the the uh, I got a request to review a paper for CMAJ or, or, or JAMA, um, and it was entitled uh, "Medical Marijuana: The Coming Storm," uh, and it was all about how with the change in rules uh, federally about how cannabis would be prescribed by doctors. The doc here, here, here as a doctor is how you tell a patient that I can't prescribe you cannabis. And the crux of the argument was there's not a lot of good data, which is true. Uh, and there are some important harms, which is actually also true, despite what the cannabis lobby likes to say. But my my thinking on this was, well, man, I mean, tell, show me a drug where that isn't true. It's true of opioids, it's true of benzos. And I had just seen this guy who had been hospitalized with an, an overdose, um, tried to kill himself. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was actually a uh, treatment emergent suicidality from his SSRI. But this guy had a long, he's a smart guy, he's maybe about 60 years old, his long history of mental illness, and he'd been on benzos, and he'd been on antipsychotics, and he'd been on um, lithium, and he'd been on, you know, you name it, he'd been on it. And he said to me, listen, every time they put me on one of these drugs, I just feel like a zombie. He said, the only time I feel normal, 10 o'clock and my wife gives me the blessing, I'll take the dog for a walk and I'll smoke a joint. I'll go to sleep and I'll have a good quality sleep. And, you know, I'm not drinking. I'm not putting back three milligrams of lorazepam to go to sleep. I just have a nice, my problems don't go away, but at least I'm able to have a restorative sleep. And my thinking is, when I hear an anecdote like that, like i, I you know, who am I to argue with this guy? He's telling me what actually works for him and telling me what doesn't work for him. And so, you know, if I'm a doctor managing pain or managing anxiety or managing insomnia and the patient either comes to me and says, listen, I've used cannabis and it actually helps me or is willing to try cannabis instead of an opioid, um, uh, to me, it's, it's, an, it's an easy decision most of the time. There are just a couple sort of side topics that uh, came to mind, which are not based around opioids. There was a recent case that you were posting about regarding magic mushrooms and the person had a significant negative 
of reaction, but I didn't, I don't know what that case actually involved. Could you shed any light on that uh, or even just highlight the possibility that people, you know, including a lot of the people who watch my content may be sort of encountering magic mushrooms, but it could be far more dangerous than they, oh. they think. Well, yeah, I mean, psilocybin is pretty safe. The, the worry, then this, the instance I think you're referring to is somebody who thought they were taking magic mushrooms and uh, developed acute liver injury and they almost need a gallerina, which, uh, you know, the, the, sometimes even mycologists have a hard time identifying one mushroom from another. But the, I think um, my, there again is a good example. If someone could actually purchase psilocybin legally, um, they wouldn't be foraging for, they wouldn't end up taking something that's going to trash their liver, right? So this, this instance, I didn't actually, I wasn't directly involved with the patient's care, at least not you know, on an ongoing basis. So I don't know what happened. But uh, the, the, the fact is that the person had, was a young person who thought they were taking magic mushrooms and a week later was in an intensive care unit with a liver that was failing. And it just takes one or two caps of um, amanita uh, or, you know, uh, some other amatoxin-containing mushroom to kill you. So uh, that really is a good example of how, you know, people are going to try things. And given that people are going to try things, it does seem to make sense that uh, we make it safe as opposed to something that could kill you. So um, I, I don't have a particular issue. I, in fact, I think the stuff out of uh, Dave Nutt's lab in um, uh, in the UK on the utility of psilocybin uh, for depression in particular is actually pretty impressive, uh, at least from preliminary perspective. I, you know, I, I, was, I did some post of maybe a year ago, like just really impressive and sustained reductions in depression scores after a single dose or two, if I recall correctly, of psilocybin. Like, show me an antidepressant that does that. So I, I, I'm, I think that psilocybin is a, frankly, pretty safe, psilocybin mushroom is pretty safe, provided you're actually taking psilocybin, not something else. And the other uh, sort of side topic was when I was researching pregabalin, I noticed there's been a lot of interest in whether or not it has a, a higher risk of heart failure than gabapentin. And I think you, you had at least one paper talking about this. Does it actually seem to be a risk compared to gabapentin? Well, it, it seems to cause edema in some people. So when I put somebody in on pregabalin, so the answer is, first of all, no, it doesn't seem to be any worse than gabapentin, but we didn't compare it to nothing because you, you, we compared gabapentin and, and, and pregabalin because they're relatively comparable drugs that are used for similar indications, even if not you know, you wouldn't want to do a study that looks at pregabalin users versus non-pregabalin users because they're going to be different in a million different ways, um, some of which you can quantify and some of which you can't. Um, but it does seem to be the case that pregabalin in some people will cause edema, and I think that occasionally gets labeled as heart failure. I don't know. The only mechanism that I can postulate is because pregabalin works by antagonizing a, a subunit on the calcium channel receptors. I think in, in, in calcium channel blockers do this. Like It's a very common with nifedipine and, and verapamil and diltiazem, you'll see the development of edema, and sometimes it's labeled as heart failure. I think pregabalin does the same thing in some people, and in the clinical trials of pregabalin before it came to market, it was upwards of 20% of people developed some degree of edema. I don't think it causes heart failure in the true sense, like, you know, salt and water overload and fluid in the lungs. Like, I think it primarily manifests as edema, and in some people, that might just be the price you pay. Maybe your pain is improved and you're willing to tolerate uh, shoes that are a bit snugger, but maybe in others it's just disabling and interferes with your ambulation. It's always a patient-based assessment. So our paper was, uh, you know, that the paper looking at pregabalin versus gabapentin was a good example of using big, dumb databases to see if there's a signal there. What you really want to know is, does pregabalin cause edema or heart failure on its own? And it's not really the sort of thing that's suited to the sort of data we have. To, uh, to start wrapping up, outside of mainstream opioid issues, as we've been talking about, are there any current prescribing practices that are fairly popular that you think will eventually go away and will recognize they were not really particularly wise? Well, I, I don't know if it ever go away because of the a societal preoccupation with drugs to fix problems. Um, and, and, the, and the practice models, and I don't mean to impugn my colleagues, but practice models favor, you know, going through patients quickly. And it's easy to write a prescription. It takes a minute. It takes 15 or 20 not to write one sometimes. And so the path of least resistance is sometimes to give a patient a drug because you think it's going to help them or because they've requested it and you think that on balance it's probably a low-risk proposition. But yeah, there are a few practices that I think we could see less of and hopefully one day will be realized as bad ideas. You know, benzos for insomnia. I think that they have a role to play, but uh, to take a, 
benzos every single night to help you sleep is, I, I think in general, it's not good medical practice. Uh, it, you know, it got all kinds of baggage. Um, I think quetiapine in particular to help you sleep is something we see a ton of here. I think it's got related to its name. You, know, you can spell the word quiet with the drug. And Seroquel, the brand, just has a sleepy sounding name to it. Any given day, I've got 25 patients on internal medicine. I probably have three or four of them who are on quetiapine, an antipsychotic to help them sleep. And sometimes they've got the, the baggage that comes with antipsychotics to go along with it. From a, you know, I, think, I think opioids for chronic pain. Again, I think they have a role. It's just not the role that they've enjoyed for the past 15 or 20 years. And I think, especially when it comes to the, the use of high doses, I think that, that is where you're just inviting the scale to be tipped in favor of harm. And the, the, the problem there in particular is there's a very, very powerful lobby opposing um, measures to, to, to make opioid prescribing a little more sensible. The, sometimes it's ideologues, it's patients who are very vocal and invested in opioids. Sometimes it's the pain thought leaders who got us into trouble, but it heads with them a few times on Twitter. But sometimes it's the companies themselves. And in fact, it's, I think the AP reported this last year, the, uh, Opioid manufacturers in the U.S. spent $880 million, mostly with donations to politicians, um, in efforts to uh, oppose measures meant to curtail opioid prescribing. That's, that's eight times what the NRA paid over the last decade or so. Um, so they're very powerful. Uh, and I think that it's, uh, again, going on the opioid angle, I'm sorry, Seth, it's just something I can't help but do. I think the, uh, I'm hopeful that one day we look back and say, you know what? Yeah. Opioids have a role. Here's what it seems to be. We finally have some studies to guide us in how to use it. And we know that having people on two or three or 400 milligrams of morphine a day is just bad medicine because I think most of the time it is. These are not issues that necessarily actually concern me like they do for some people. But when it comes to SSRIs and then prescription stimulants for ADHD, those have historically been some quite controversial areas. Do you think mm. there's a major overprescribing issue with well, either? I mean, the problem is that the stimulants work. I mean, for some people who have issues with focus and impulsivity, um, whether they have ADHD or not, um, I mean, they really can help some people. And so I, I don't have a huge problem with, um, I don't want to get into the weeds here too much, but I mean, if someone is functioning better at work or at school on a low dose of Adderall, you know, and they're taking breaks on the, on the hall on holidays and, you know, that, that's, I mean, more power to them. I think that that's fine if it really is helping. Um, I think the idea that one in nine people needs to be on an amphetamine is kind of crazy. But I think that um, it seems to me that people with more severe variants uh, or people with real problems with inattention and impulsivity are the ones where you'd want to preferentially deploy it, not the kid who's just, you know, getting 82s and his parents want him to get 92s. I think that risks teaching a young person that, uh, the, the, you know, I don't want to sound too puritanical about it, but I think it risks teaching a young person that pills are the answer to your problems when, you know, maybe they'll help you, maybe they, they won't. But I think um, the, the fact is that as a general rule, drug therapy is going to be more beneficial in people with more severe disease. And so the person is a little bit inattentive, as I was all through junior high and high school, um, probably shouldn't be put on. Adderall or Ritalin or whatever, whereas the person who's just bouncing off the walls and, you know, that's a perfectly reasonable candidate. SSRIs to me, um, you know, I see so many, I think one in 10, I mean, it's got to be one of the most, it's, it's a widely, widely prescribed class of drugs. And the evidence is pretty clear on this, that they help, you know, if you, if, when you look at the outcomes of HAMD scores or depression scores, I mean, the group that really benefits seems to be people with more severe depression. And I see an awful lot of people <clears throat> who are on SSRIs. And when you dig into the story a little bit, it's, it was just given because, again, I think the family doc or whoever prescribed it thought it might help with their low mood, but they really don't have major depression. And, you know, it's not like SSRIs don't have their own baggage, um, you know, suicidality included. Uh, so I think that both stimulants and SSRIs could be prescribed more judiciously. And by that, I mean to people who are more likely to benefit and less likely to be harmed. And that means focusing on people with more severe disease. Again, the, there's a lot of money to be made in selling more and more ta tablets and capsules. And so I don't want to be too, I don't, again, want to be too disparaging, but there's a lot of people who, you know, get put on SSRIs in particular for life didn't work out and they got a bad marriage or they don't like their job. And I'm, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound too disparaging, but I see people who get put on drugs 
for because their mood is low for reasons that aren't going to be improved by the addition of citalopram. And yet they stay on citalopram forever. And again, I just don't think that that's how it should be. And there seems to be in the case of especially drugs like SSRIs, but also even opioids, that some of the problems stem from a lack of access to alternative kinds of therapy. In the case of SSRIs, there is a, at least in the US, a seemingly major shortage in psychotherapists. And there's certain areas where getting a good psychotherapist is, is very difficult. So suddenly you're in a situation where drugs actually become basically your treatment option. And I think that may play a role. And I, I know you've also, in the case of opioids, at least mentioned a little bit about exercise or meditation, just other things that could help people, especially with milder forms of pain, deal yeah. with them without moving to drugs. Do you think that is a, a good strategy? Well, yeah, no, I agree 100%. I think that we are a pill-centric society. It's partly because of advertising. It's partly because of just how We've been pill-centric for decades now, um, and we do to a certain extent. Um, and people, of course, vary, but there's a there's a certain perception out there that you know if you can't sleep, there's got to be a pill for that, and you can't stay awake, there's a pill for that too, and you're in pain, there must be a pill for that. Um, we we are a society that doesn't mind taking pills and sometimes seeks them out. And doctors are often a little bit too uh, free to prescribe them. When in fact, for, for many of our problems, there are non-drug therapies that are certainly safer and quite possibly better. You know, let's say I have a patient with chronic pain where I have a strong sense that they'd be better off with cognitive behavioral therapy and losing 30 pounds and doing some exercise. Well, if they don't have coverage for those things and exercise is hard and weight loss is even harder, um, you know, it's it's easy to just take the path of least resistance, resistance and put them on a pill uh, until you step back and realize that that might not be helping them. Uh, and it might, you know, I mean, so the bottom line is I agree 100% with what you just said. I mean, there are, there are there, particularly pain and, and mental health in particular, very often the things that a patient is most likely to benefit from are things that they either don't want to do or can't afford and, or don't have access to. And so I think, you know, part of addressing the opioid crisis, it's multifaceted, but part of it is rethinking how doctors and patients approach the management of pain and relying on pills of all sorts less readily um, and relying on other modalities more. So yeah, I, I'm, we're on the same page there. The thing I want to end on is how should patients get more involved? That seems to be very common for people to be on multiple drugs. They don't really know the side effects. They obviously don't know how they work, yet they're complaining about side effects and, and concerned about their, their health. You know, what should patients be doing? Because right now it seems to be a a very one-sided discussion in many cases for just giving the drugs and that's about where it ends and the patients don't really have anywhere to turn to learn about right. the the substances or anything well um, I mean the drug classroom I suppose is one uh, for, for certain kinds of drugs I haven't looked at all of your posts but uh, the ones I've seen it looked pretty impressive I, I got to say that the I think pharmacists have a big role to play here I mean they are you know they're ubiquitous they are trained pharmacists in general know a lot more about drugs than doctors do. And I think that uh, if people have concerns about their medications or how they might interact or the side effect profiles, I mean, you know, sitting down for even 10 or 15 minutes with a pharmacist is something that, I mean, this is what they are trained to do. Not every pharmacist does it to the same degree. And some pharmacists, in my experience, don't like doing it, but some are amazing at it. And I think that it's just, they're so, they're accessible and they're knowledgeable, and they are really important members of the team. And so I think if we just remember that there's more to it than just doctors and patients, they're, you know, they're, when it comes to medications, you can get all kinds of misinformation on the internet. Um, um, and you can get misinformation from doctors and pharmacists too, for that matter. But I think pharmacists, uh, I, I would point patients to pharmacists as a uh, as a first step, and then probably to specific resources online, um, you know, depending on what drugs you're referring to. I'm, I'm not sure what your views of Irwood, for example, are. I think it's actually a pretty good website for, yeah. for some people. And again, yeah, it sort of depends where you go. You can you can go, um, you can get so much misinformation um, uh, on the web that I think it's better to start with an actual person. Great. So your Twitter feed, which is not always the case for doctors, is uh, actually quite interesting or even entertaining. Uh, where can people find you to follow your posts? So yeah, I, it's my, I tweet under David Yurlink, J-U-U-R-L-I-N-K, and uh, I'll tweet about probably about 50% of opioids by weight. I just It's become a major preoccupation of mine, and I, I do kind of worry about becoming a... Um, 
monotonous or a bit of a one-trick pony. But I, I, I think um, you know Twitter. I, I'm not on any other social media. I'm not even on Facebook. I just I, I think Twitter is a great way of learning and communicating your views and having sometimes discussions. Uh, they can get a little bit heated at times, but um, you know it's a it's a it's a nice way of exchanging ideas um, if you can manage to control your use of it. It's, I, I wish I could more than I I, I do, but uh, yeah, I, I think and I, I've uh, you seem to tweet relatively infrequently, but high value stuff. I would say so. I'm I, I've uh, uh, make a point of, of following the stuff that you tweet as well, Seth. Great. Well, it was uh, it was really nice having you on. Thank you for accepting the invitation. I've wanted to have you on for a while, and when I started the podcast, your name pretty much immediately came up. So I will uh, make sure to link your social media stuff in the description. And again, thank you. My pleasure. Happy to retweet it and look forward to seeing it. Thank, thanks, Seth. Mm-hmm. 